This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Finding Your Bliss with host Judy Liebrach, heard every Saturday at 1 p.m. on Zoomer Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Liebrach, and today I am delighted to be joined by an award-winning actress and director whose career has spanned over four decades, and that's, of course, Sheila McCarthy. Sheila McCarthy stars as Greta in Sarah Polly's Oscar-winning film, Women Talking, for which she received a Career Achievement Award at the Denver Film Festival. And she shares in the Film Independent Spirit Awards, the Robert Altman Award, given to one film's director, casting director, and ensemble cast. And of course, Women Talking just won at the Oscars for Best Adapted Screenplay. McCarthy is a two-time Canadian Screen Award winner for I've Heard the Mermaid Singing and Lotus Eaters, and she was awarded the 2018 Actor Award for Best Actress for her role in the film Cardinals. Sheila's recent television credits include Star Trek Discovery, The Good Doctor, and a recurring arc on Netflix, Umbrella Academy. Recent features include Happy Place, Broken Hearts Gallery, and The Middleman. Other notable credits include Die Hard 2 with Bruce Willis, Being Julia, The Day After Tomorrow, and Martin Haig, and Night Shoot, both opposite the late, great Gordon Pinsent. Sheila McCarthy, what an honor to have you here. Welcome to Finding Your Bliss. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I have to tell you, Sheila, that in preparing for this interview, I really was blown away by the incredible body of work that you have amassed. (laughs) Much of it is award-winning and highly acclaimed. And it has to be said, as mentioned off the top, that you have the distinction of having won two Genie Awards, two Gemini Awards, two Dora Awards, and an Actor Award for your highly impressive body of work thus far. But I'd love to go back to the beginning just for a moment Sheila, you were born in Willowdale, so born and raised in Toronto, and you moved to Thornhill as a young girl. Your father was a doctor, a radiologist, your mother an occupational therapist, and you've talked about how hugely supportive your parents always were of your career. They seemed to get the showbiz thing, and as you've described fondly, your mother scrambled eggs with Danny Kaye, and and you recount how your father x-rayed Anne Murray's stomach and Robert Goulet's throat. Can you tell us more about what it was like being one of four children growing up in Toronto? Was it a happy childhood? You know, it really was. You know, a lot of actors think you have to come from a sort of, you know, screwed up, dysfunctional family to be a a great artist. And I thought, wow, that's never going to work for me. My my parents were incredible people. And, you know, they had my dad especially had one rule. You know how we feel about it, but do what you want. And we've all sort of ended up in the arts in one way or another. My sister's a photographer. My brother's a composer in L.A. And they really exposed us very early on to everything. And and yet they were, you know, had nothing to do with the arts. Not, they, they went to the Crest Theatre to see things occasionally, but they never said no to that aspect. And I, I don't think they ever thought that I would pursue it professionally. I think they thought that I would, you know, grow out of it and go to university and become a teacher or, you know, whatever. But they never said no. So I was the second born. So, you know, I was the one. And then Molly, my 
younger sister came along quite quickly. So I was sort of tap dancing in the corner to be <laughs> noticed. And, and um, I was sort of the quirky, funny one right from the get-go, I think, but painfully shy at the same time. So my exposure to my early dance school at the Allen and Blanche Lund School of Dance is yes. really what kicked it all off for me. And Alan Lund was the, you know, he started the Charlottetown Festival and and the Navy show. And he and Blanche were the Fred and Ginger of Canada. And, wow. and I really credit them for plucking me out of the chorus line and, <laughs> and seeing some talent and giving me funny parts in the Wicked Witch of the West and right away. And, and I really... I guess, got into my bloodstream pretty early on. <laughs> that was at age six that you played that role. And I think it was, I think I was eight. Eight years old. But we had done, but we had done shows before that. They were, my parents almost sent me to the National Ballet, but they sent me to the Allen Blanche because it was in Willowdown. It was closer to home. <laughs> and thank goodness they did because they were showbiz. I don't think I would have survived the National Ballet. It was, you know, such a pure thing, the ballet world. And Alan and Blanche introduced me to ballet, tap jazz, and we were doing shows for, you know, senior citizen homes and crippled children hospitals. You know, that's how long ago it was when I was six. So I was in front of audiences from a very young age. And that was great exposure, of course. I think you first got dazzled by all of it all when you saw Mary Martin perform in Peter Pan as a little girl. And that sort of began your lifelong Mm -hmm. passion for dance and for movement. Do you Mm -hmm. remember what it was about that performance that made you go, yes? Yes. I mean, when you think about it, Peter Pan only aired once a year at Christmas, once, Hmm. maybe three years in a row. And so it was, it's not like my kids who could watch the Wizard of Oz 50 times a day when they wanted to yes. uh, with VHS and DVD. It was so indelible to me that I got to watch it maybe three times in my life. And I'd never seen anything like it. And it was the black and white Mary Martin, very theatrical. And I never forgot it. And I just wanted to be Peter Pan. And as a matter of fact, I played Peter Pan many, many years later for Ross Petty at the Panto in yes. Toronto at the Elgin <laughs> Theatre. And really, I could have hung up my tap shoes when, when I finished flying. I was, Glorious. you know, I said to Ross, you can do all the jokes, the Panto <laughs> jokes. I'm just happy to be in my Mary Martin bubble here. Wow. So I think just to have been inspired and find that passion so early on, it never really wavered, you know, so. Wow. Well, we're, we're very fortunate that that happened because we all have yeah. gotten to enjoy a lot of incredible performances. So shortly thereafter, your parents enrolled you in a dance studio, Alan Lund's dance studio. You learned a lot. You also went to a very progressive high school, the Thornley Secondary School, which I think they had a, a real sense of a love for the arts And they even Mm -hmm. had this course, let's put on a show. So you were able to put on a show that you wrote, starred, directed in in a musical called Checkmate. And when you went on to become a professional dancer and went on tour for Anna Green Gables and other shows, you were actually able to get high school credits for that. Like that is so cool. I mean, I was touring Canada when I was 16 and Thornley Secondary School. And it was, you know, sort of the early 1970s were experimenting. There were no grades, no, there were classrooms, but there were, yeah. And so it was, yeah, I got credits. I got music credits and theater credits. And at the time I really was just dancing. I was a professional dancer. I was not opening my mouth too much in those years, but yeah, I got credits for it. Isn't that crazy? Oh, I mean, it, it almost reminded me when I was reading this, it was almost like a Banff School for the Arts or an Etobicoke School for the Arts way before its time. Mm. It's sort of... Absolutely. Wow. 
It's fabulous that you yep. do that. And it suited me. I was a pretty good student, so I could handle that. For a lot of kids, they needed more structure. Yes. But I, I loved that. So again, yes. I remember, though, I remember in grade 10 doing very badly in math. And my teacher, Mr. Attridge, going, you know what? You should probably just give me that textbook and just walk on out of here. You don't really <laughs> need to do math anymore. We love him. <laughs> We yes. love that and guy. I remember, oh my God, the guidance counselor, Mr. Morrison said, whatever you do, Sheila, don't pursue a career in the arts. You'll never make a living. <laughs> <laughs> Sheila, I'm so in awe of any actor, but you in particular here, who have studied with Uta Hagen. Mm-hmm. And you actually spent time in New York studying with her. And I wondered if you used all of those nine questions that she created, who am I? What time is it? What surrounds me? What are my circumstances? Yep. What do you remember the most about studying with Uta Hagen and living in New York oh, City? Oh gosh, well, I mean, living in New York, first of all, was an incredible experience. And I was living with an actor, Dana Ivey, who had been, we'd been at the Shaw Festival together. I did the musical of putting on the Ritz there and she is an incredible actress, but she was going through a tough time of not working. And so I was, I remember feeling like, wow, this is a tough old business because she's an incredible actress. Mm. But I remember Uta Hagen was all about props. So I would wait for Dana to leave her apartment and then I would fill the suitcase (laughs) full of stuff that Dana owned and lug it down to the village to my acting class, to to Uta Hagen's class. And, And I remember my audition with Uta Hagen. I was so nervous. And I decided to smoke a cigarette. And it was a monologue from 10 Lost Years, which is a Canadian play. And I, I was a waitress who had been assaulted. And I, oh. I was so nervous, I couldn't get the cigarette lit. And oh. she smiled and uh, understood. And she understood that I was a dancer. And she loved working with dancers because of the discipline of our field. Mm. And that's how she taught acting. And her, you know, her philosophies were so different from the method or, or Stella Adler. They were yes. much more practical. And having been a dancer, that spoke to me, you know, wow. that through the use of props and things uh, comes the emotional life. And I really understood that, that really, that spoke to me very clearly. So it was, she was a great fit for me. Her classes were great. And I think that really stood you in good stead. I mean, what a gift to be taught by Uta Hagen early on in your career. I mean, I could just imagine how you began to fly after that. I also loved when I read that like Nia Vardalos, you were working as a waitress at Yucks and you saw Robin Williams do a set and you were actually taking Second City classes at the same time Mm -hmm. and you invited Robin Williams before Mork and Mindy Days to attend a class with you. Mm-hmm. And John Candy was teaching that class. Like, this Isn't is that, so epic. I was, I was just reading this and going, good Lord. I know, I know. And honestly, I recognized Robin Williams. I was vacuuming at the end of the night at Yuck yeah. Yucks. And he came up and I had furniture piled on the table and he went, stereo sculpture, stop. He did this improv around <laughs> me. And I was just, and I, I'd seen him on Happy Days, but he was about to quit the business and moved to the California mountains with his wife, who was a dancer, and run a serenity tank emporium for out-of-work actors. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, you can't make that stuff up. <laughs> so we met for coffee. He came to the class with John Candy. He didn't, like, everybody felt that they were in the presence mm-hmm. of somebody. And honestly, the set that he did the night at Yuck Yucks, comedy changed. <sighs> you know, Chaz Lowther, Mike Myers. Oh, there were so many people there. 
um, Sheila Gostick, and they stood at the back and they watched comedy change with Robin Williams on stage. I'll never forget it. But he came to the class and then Mork and Mindy hit and the rest is history, rest is history. right? Yeah. And I love that you yeah. had the confidence to ask him to to accompany you to the Second City class. Yeah, well, he was up doing the he was he was up doing the Peter Zosky. It wasn't radio yet. He was Peter Zosky live, and he had the suspenders and the buttons oh. and the you know. And he was just starting, and so he said, "I'm." I said, "Well, why are you here at Yak Yaks?" He said, well, "I just like to work out." I said, "Well, you should come to my class then." Oh my and, god, that's <laughs> fabulous! Oh, no. Your, your oh, career in television and film all started when you played Anna in the made-for-TV movie, A Nest for Singing Birds, where I think you really got to figure it out, lights, where your mark was, what cameras mm-hmm. to look at, when and how. And even though it was your first major deal, you were nominated for a Gemini Award for that performance. But the movie that really blew me away, Sheila, was I've Heard the Mermaids Singing. And I just rewatched it in preparation for this interview. Oh. And quite honestly, like, I don't want to cry on on the show, but it was such a tour de force performance. I could not get over it. Like, I really think it was the performance of a lifetime. And of course you won a Gemini award, the equivalent of an Academy award for best actress for that film. Your performance in that was beyond breathtaking and exquisite. And I don't mean to fangirl about it, but I just, it blew me away. What was it like playing Polly, the quirky organizationally impaired girl? Cause man, that was something out of this world. Do you know, I had just lost a big American TV series called VH Adderley when this audition for Mermaids came out. My agent, Debbie Peck, phoned me and she went, well, there's this small Canadian movie. And I went, okay. And I was still really from the disappointment of my first American audition expecting to get it. And uh, boy, but I went in and then I had to do a callback and then I did another callback. And by the time I did, I think the fourth callback for Patricia Rosema, I learned the line. And I thought this part was kind of written for me. Like we didn't know each other. And it was as though someone said to me once, oh, Patricia Rosema wrote your clown when she wrote Polly and Mermaids. And I thought, wow, that's kind of true. And so by the fourth audition, I remember, and I've never done this since, I said to Patricia Rosema, you have to give me this part. Um, There's nobody else. You Please. And she did in the moment. And First of all, like that was great. But I also thought nobody will watch this movie. It's so quirky. Nobody will watch this little plain Jane thing with the, well, look at my hair. It's exactly the same. Uh, <laughs> years later. Um, nobody will watch this, you know, girl in a flannelette nightgown eating peas out of a can. I really, so we shot it not ever thinking it was going to have the acclaim that it ended up getting. And and so that was a very private. And I also had not really done movies very much. I'm a theater baby. So I was so tired and we shot it in 18 days. And it was just me every day, every night, all the time. And I'm just going, I really am tired. I just want to go home and sleep. <laughs> and it was, you know, beg, borrow and steal sets and locations. There was no money. We were freezing cold. I did craft service. And I was just going, I really need to get back to the theater. So, I mean, I understood it was a great part, but I was just pretty miserable <laughs> making it oh a lot of the time. God. And then Patricia phoned me and she said, we're going to Cannes, the Cannes Film Festival. And I went, what? We had no photos. The day <laughs> after I finished shooting, my father took the photo that ended up on the poster of, yes. of it. Okay. And the iconic, you know, 
thing. And, and, uh, we, you could have knocked us all over with a feather and then my world opened and it was a crazy time for me. I was doing Sally Bowles in Stratford. I had just gotten married. I got pregnant. Mm. I I mean, how much more can you load on your plate (laughs) in one year? Um, but it Uh. was life changing and people still talk to me about it, that movie. Like it, you know, I want to tell our listeners, honestly, you can go online to YouTube even, or to Apple TV, or there's many ways to watch it quite inexpensively. Go rewatch I've Heard the Mermaid Singing, honestly, for just, uh, I don't know, one of the best performances I've ever seen of any actor. You You know, but it's also, I won't say it was ahead of its time, but I, you know, because it deals with some um, lesbian themes in it. But what I loved about what Patricia wrote is that it wasn't about that. Mm-hmm. Like it was mm-hmm. so f- much more about finding your art and finding your passion and speaking, the little, the underdog speaking up f- for herself, the sort of yes. Walter Mitty. And I do remember reading the script the first time, worrying that what will my mother's bridge club think about <laughs> me, me if I have to kiss another woman yes. in the mood. And then when I finished the script, I went, oh, I don't get to. Hmm. <laughs> That's kind of disappointing. And, and you know, oh, my mom loved the movie. Although I did Nest of Singing Birds and I've heard the mermaids singing very close together. And wow. my mom could never get the titles of those movies straight. She'd say, I've heard those bluebells singing. Like she was just, she was so funny about them. Um, but yeah, that movie really, and you know, it opened so many doors for me and really sort of wet my appetite to do more movies. And I never thought I would. Like, I always thought that I was too freckly and too kind of, you know, quirky looking. And, you know, at that time of movie making and TV, it was the pretty girl and then the quirky best friend who doesn't get the guy. And it was a different time than it is now for, for movie making. And I, I, did get stuff because of it. And I didn't, you know, it was, it was just an interesting time in my career. What are your memories of the night when you won the Gemini Award for playing that role? Oh. I think I was there as a journalist. What were you oh, wow. feeling when you ascended up onto that stage to accept your award? Well, I had a five-day-old daughter yes. who was in the hotel room oh. with my mother, like literally almost came from the hospital. Mm. And and I thought I was looking quite svelte in a jumpsuit. With and then I looked at it like, oh my God, I had a five-day-old daughter. And I remember Zula Nui was nominated that same year. And I remember saying, thank God there were no feet, because it won everything, huh. Zula Nui and a French film. And I remember saying, well, I'm really glad there were no female nominees from that movie because I wouldn't have won. Um, wow. But I remember walking across Martha Henry's lap to get up to the award. And I said, I can't believe I'm away from my daughter. And she said, you'll get used to it. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, that was a very surreal moment for me because I I was just thrilled. I was just beyond thrilled. It It was such an exciting time. It's, it, it, yeah, I, I do remember it. And also the party, the party after yes. Mr. T was there and he crashed the party and my mom was really mad. <laughs> she was like, he's not allowed in here. He's upstaging your whole night. She like, well, I'm, I'm going to go up. So she went up and told Mr. T that he was not welcome <laughs> at my party. <laughs> oh my God. Hilarious? Oh my God. That's hilarious. My mother. What is so fascinating about your career is that you've really been successful in every medium from stage to television to film. In fact, you played Adelaide at Stratford in, in 2004. And very early on in your career, you established yourself as a triple threat 
We talked about Thornley, the Charlottetown Festival. And then, of course, unforgettable performances were created in films like I've Heard the Mermaid Singing, as we just discussed. And then, of course, most recently, in Sarah Pauly's spectacular Women Talking, which we'll mm-hmm. talk about in a moment. But I just want to say that once you said, and I'm wondering if it's still the same thing, that your favorite medium is television. And that really mm-hmm. surprised me. What is it about television that makes it your favorite medium? Or has that changed? Mm-hmm. No, I don't think it has changed. And I think what I very often in films, you are a day here, a day there. There's months in between. There's a lot of hurry up and wait. And it's, it's kind of, I go from sort of terror to boredom. There's not much in between. <laughs> And we'll talk about women talking because that was an anomaly. That was like theater. We were there all day, every day. So that's hard to sustain a kind of feeling like a belongingness and feeling a comfort zone. Mm -hmm. But what you get in a television series, which I just love doing, is that you are part of a family. So it's like a theatrical experience, but you get to do something different every day. Mm -hmm. So that's, for me... I think that that is just dandy. I love that. I love the idea of getting to know your family of people and getting to stretch and grow with a character that lasts sometimes. Like for Little Mosque on the Prairie, it was over six years that we got to develop that. And my comfort zone in that was so like an old shoe, you know, and so I just love that. And yet it was always changing. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't like, you know, the long seasons in Stratford where you're doing the same show day in and day out. You know, like I have friends who do Broadway shows, do Harry Potter eight times a week, the same show, like, ah! (laughs) I think the longest run I ever did was Little Shop of Horrors and singing Audrey. Somewhere that's green, yep. Yes. Oh my God. That was, and that was long enough because I was never really a great singer, but I had three big notes, but I was very worried about the vocals. But I just love that because really for me, acting is of being in a state of discomfort. So wherever I can find comfort, I look for it to, in order to free up the courage and the confidence and all those things that come and go, you know? Yes. Um, Stamina. The stamina. I just, I want to talk to you about that in a minute, but. Oh boy. Yeah. You you worked on, Sheila, you worked on Road to Avonlea playing the role of Betty Blaine. And I know that you did one of the last two episodes with Eugene Levy. Yeah. Like how cool (laughs) is that? Was that so great to work with that comedy icon? Oh my gosh. He he was just the bee's knees. I mean, we played an old vaudeville couple and he's dried up. So we moved to Avonlea. So he'll gain some sort of inspiration from being in the country. And I think they were scraping the bottom of the barrel for (laughs) plot lines by then. (laughs) But he was wonderful. And working with Jackie Burroughs, of course, who I adored. And I'd done some theater with her. So that was just great. And Sarah Paul, you know, uh, as a little girl, right? Yes. So, no, that was just along the way. I've worked with some pretty great people, and Eugene is one of them. Oh, for sure, so fabulous. Yeah. You just mentioned. I love that you worked with Sarah Pauly, fellow Canadian acting legend, when she mm-hmm. was a child actress, and it was probably on that series. And then a few years ago, you had this life changing hour and a half Zoom call with Sarah Pauly, where she mm-hmm. laid out her vision for women talking based on the Miriam Tay's novel. And I read that you were overcome with emotion during and after that Zoom call. Mm-hmm. Did you realize at the time the impact this film, Women Talking, was going to have on people all over the world? Actually, Sheila, don't answer that just yet. We're going to go on a short commercial break. When we come back, we'll hear all about what you thought back in a moment. 
Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility center for over 25 years. Create is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. Create is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, Create is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. Create has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? Create Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. Hi, everyone. We're back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, and I'm having a delightful conversation with Sheila McCarthy. Just before the break, Sheila, I asked you if you knew the impact women talking was going to have on the world. You know, I don't think I realized that at that moment because I wasn't there yet. First of all, I was, we were coming out of two years of COVID. Yes. So I'd gotten kind of good at COVID (laughs) in terms of maybe I'm done. Maybe I'm, I wasn't restless. I wasn't stressed about anything. Uh, My days were filled and I thought, wow, this is kind of relaxing (laughs) to be (laughs) um, kind of chilled like this. And then I got the zoom with Sarah Pauly and I read the script and I very quickly in that hour and a half realized what an important film this was going to be. So that was daunting. And through the course of that hour and a half, and she was so apologetic. She was going, I'm really, really sorry that you have to go through this hoop, but Brad Pitt's company has to approve you and Francis McDormand. I'm like, you know what? I'm good with that. It's okay. I'm pretty good with I'm okay if Francis McDormand has to approve me. That's fine. And it was just her and I, which was so mm-hmm. elegant. Mm-hmm. And so, and as the Zoom went on, I got hungrier for the part of Greta. And I loved Greta. I loved her humor and I loved, so I think that that's what, and I really was not, it was, I got off the Zoom after an hour and a half, walked into my husband's office and burst into tears. Mm-hmm. And he went, wow, what just happened to you? And I went, I really hope that this project happens for me. And I have not felt like this for a long time because, you know, it's a long career and I've been doing it for a long time and not every job is as meaningful or, you know, you make a living and, um, and you spend a lot of time not working Mm -hmm. and being rejected. And, you know, I could talk to you for hours about that. So I got very hungry during that zoom to play the part. And then I didn't hear for three weeks. Yes. So I was like, oh, oh my God. so agonizing, <gasps> eh? So agonizing. Yep. Yeah. And I finally emailed the casting director, John Bucken. And I said, thank you. Please thank Sarah so much for that incredible moment that kind of wet my appetite again. And he emailed me right back. He went, oh no, you got the part. Oh. And I was like, what? Oh my God. Oh man. <laughs> That's wow. so wow. fabulous. Yeah. For, then I had to do it. <laughs> for people who haven't seen it yeah. yet, of course, Sheila McCarthy plays Greta, a kindly but determined elder in the community of Mennonite women. And there was even a moment where I think Sarah Pauly was worried that you were too youthful and you had oh. too much youthful energy, but you convinced her, don't worry, I'll dampen all of that to play the role. She said, she kept saying when we Zoom, she said, I think you're a bit sprightly. And I thought... 
<laughs> so I told her the story. My husband's granddaughter said to me once, you know, Sheila, you're very young, but you're actually very old. Oh, <laughs> and I told Sarah that story and I thought I could see that she clocked that. And I thought, and honestly, for the three months that I shot, I was very quiet. Mm-hmm. I was very tamped down. I was very, didn't move. Yes. <laughs> I had it because I had a director say to me once, I was doing a, a mini series with Sally Field. Oh my oh. God, the great Sally Field. And the director said, you have a very animated face. And I said, thank you. And he went, no, 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 don't. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. Oh, okay. Then I couldn't move. So I was very cognizant of not being too sprightly yes. when I did and women talking. <laughs> I, I've seen the film a few times. And of course, to prepare for this, I watched it again very closely, like really focusing on you. And and I could feel and observe that stillness in your character. And you've said that Greta's magic is like that of a good grade school teacher. She speaks quietly and gently, and you just lean in to hear more. What was involved in preparing for that role? I don't think I've ever worked harder on something. The bar was set so high with this stellar cast. So first of all, you're talking about fangirling. I had to get that out of my system (laughs) because on the very first day, Claire Foy, the queen, was washing my feet. And I'm just, I'm having an out-of-body experience (laughs) that Claire Foy is washing my feet. And I'm working with, you know, the great Judith Ivey from Broadway and Ben Wishaw and Jesse Buckley and Rooney. Like, it was just... You know, they're very low key about, they were all very low key about being movie stars, which didn't matter to me. I was inside dying. So I had to really work hard to try and get over that and not, you know, just gawk. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, I'm not sure I ever did, but Sarah set a very high bar and a very high standard when we shot that movie. And we were shooting you know, 11 page scenes for three days in a row because there were so many of us in the, mm. in the hayloft sitting in a circle and Sarah wanted so much coverage and so much, you know, listening and coverage of listening. And so I remember saying to her one day, do you think we could do a pickup? <laughs> like, do, you think, do we have to do the whole friggin' scene again? Like, and she looked at me and she went, why have I not been doing pickups? But she never did. We did. It was theater. So cool. It was theater. So wow. I really worked hard on that. You know, for me, the process of learning a script, it's always, I carried around with me for days. Hmm. It's never going to happen. I just look at it and throw it and I'm defeated and I'm daunted and I'm intimidated. And then I start feeling a bit of pressure and then I carry it and then I start looking at it and I start reading it. And then I somehow (laughs) in the gym or in the pool laps, it gets into my head. So I'm not one of those people that reads a script once and it's in my brain. It takes a lot of work and certain scripts take a lot. So this one, I really nose to the grindstone. (laughs) You've described, Sheila, that filming women talking was sort of like being in the Olympics every day and how the shoots were challenging with their long takes and long days. But I also thought to myself, it must have been so emotionally draining as well. What did you do to revive yourself after each day of shooting or before a day of shooting? Because I can't even imagine after a long day in that theatrical Mm -hmm. style, 
how you would decompress mm-hmm. and go to sleep and do it all again the next day. And we had crazy hours because they needed to get the sunrises and sunsets at the end of the week in the exterior out in Ajax. So we were often on set at 3 a.m. So that is a crazy schedule. That's like early morning CBC newscaster <laughs> schedule. So I was in bed by seven often. And I remember my husband going to the cottage and, and me just saying, please stay there. Just I can't talk to you. I've been talking all day, so I don't even want to phone you. (laughs) I would literally, at the end of the day, go home, put on some mindless (laughs) cooking show, (laughs) you know, eat junk food and go to sleep. sleep. So, but for me, exercise is paramount. So we were shooting down to the Enter Care where the one of a kind sale is down at the CNE in Toronto. And I just paced, I paced that building from one Mm. end to the, I will never, ever go in that building without thinking about that (laughs) or hours at a time yes. with music in my ears. Yes. So on the big days when I knew I had to get to like an emotional place, music has always been a great tool for me. But we also, don't forget, we were together all day, every day. Mm-hmm. And we, even as a cast, we were put in one big, great big room with mm-hmm. plexiglass between us for COVID, which of course did nothing. But <laughs> we were all together all the time. So we got very, it was a lot of fun too. And Rooney Mara brought in a a whoopee cushion fart machine (laughs) thing. And and because, you know, there were scenes where we had to laugh and often that's harder than crying. And every day somebody had a tougher scene than somebody else. So we just supported each other. And, you know, don't think I don't go into those, my big days full of dread, full of, um, here it comes. Here it comes. Okay. Now you're all going to know I'm a big imposter. Like it's always that thing as an actor walking that line, course, you know? Um, so I just had to work super hard and everybody did. There's a moment in the film where your character, Greta, apologizes to one of your daughters for not protecting her enough. And you say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And everyone is weeping with empathy at this moment that we have for your character to have to hurt their child. The most agonizing thing you'd ever want to do as a parent. It was just such an emotionally heartbreaking scene in the film to watch. And then all the women start crying. What was it like to film that scene? In the script, there was no improv in this movie. The script was written and we all respected Sarah's words. Yes. But it was only written that I would apologize once, that I would say I'm sorry once. And Sarah turned to a crew member who had had an abusive situation, a man. And after I said it once in one of the takes, she said to him, is that enough? And he went, no. Mm -hmm. And so we did another take and I said it twice. And then Sarah said to him, is that enough? And he went, not quite. And I, which is just, you know, breathtaking. And so we went again and Sarah said, this time, just keep talking until you think you're done. So, oh my goodness. Yeah. So that's where that, and you know, in all honesty, I actually don't remember shooting that. I don't remember saying it three times. And when I saw the movie, I went, I mean, and I'm not that kind of methody kind of, I can remember every moment Mm -hmm. usually, but that one, I don't remember saying I'm sorry three times. And then I thought, well, I guess I did. And I thought, how Canadian of me to say I'm sorry (laughs) three times. (laughs) But then after that last take, Sarah turned to the crew guy and she said, was that it? And he went, yep, that's good. Isn't that great? Oh, good God. Is it ever? Is it ever? 
There's a yes. moment in the film, Women Talking, when your character, Greta, uses the example of her horses, Ruth and Cheryl, fleeing as a metaphor for how the women must leave the colony. And she makes the important distinction that it is not fleeing, but making the decision to leave for their mm-hmm. safety. Can you set this clip up for us? Because we have a clip for our audience. Mm-hmm. This is a lovely montage where there's been such dissension among the women in the hayloft, whether to stay and do nothing after, you know, they've come forward and finally opened up about their nightmare abuses together for yes. the very first time, whether to stay and do nothing, stay and fight or leave. And no one is in agreement. Everyone is talking over. And I think Judith Ivy and I, as the two elders, finally use metaphors and finally use examples to try and sort of calm a situation down. And Greta does it through her horses, explaining that it's really not about the fact that they want to leave. It's that you can't stay. And for me, in my situations, in my life, in I've never been in an abusive situation, but in other situations, it's not that I really want to leave. It's that I can't possibly stay. You don't have a choice. So I think that that is something we've all been through. And I think that Greta uses this moment to sort of try and diffuse a situation in order to carry on and come to some consensus about what we're going to do because we don't have time. Wow. Let's roll that clip from Sarah Pauly's Oscar-winning film, Women Talking, in a wonderful scene starring Sheila McCarthy. I want to talk about my horses, Ruth and Cheryl. When Ruth and Cheryl are frightened by Duke's dogs on the mile road that leads to the church, their initial instinct is to bolt. These horses don't organize meetings to decide what they will do. They run. But Greta, we are not animals. We have been preyed upon like animals. Maybe we should respond like animals. In my lifetime, I have seen horses confront angry dogs and try to stomp them to death. Animals don't always flee. Is this how we want to teach our daughters to defend themselves? By fleeing? Not fleeing, but leaving. I, I was just talking about I would about rather leaving. stand my ground and shoot each man in the heart and bury him in a pit than flee. It's just, it is, it's really about seeing the bigger picture, isn't it? Rather than what is right in front of us, but to sort of try and see the bigger picture. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. There's so many moments and I know I can't get to mom. And so I want to encourage everyone to go and see this film, Women Talking. It's brilliant. But I just have to talk about, you described a heart-wrenching moment in the film when your character Greta is in the aftermath of an assault. It's devastating to watch your character in an immense amount of physical and emotional pain, making your bed at the end of this scene. And there are so many exquisitely detailed moments in the film like this. And you've mentioned that Sarah Pauly let you reshoot this scene days before the end of filming. Can you tell us more about that? Well, we shot the scene and the beauty of this film is that the rapes are, you never see them. So it's just because it's not about that. It's about what one does in the aftermath of that. So my scene was waking up in the morning and I guess I've been hit in the mouth. So my teeth are falling out, which is an incredible metaphor for not having a voice either. Right. And so we shot the scene and um, it went pretty well. And I went up to Sarah the next day and I said, you know, I wish I'd made my bed because that kind of action then denotes denial that anything bad ever happened. When you make your bed, Mm. it's like nothing happened. So Sarah looked at me and she went, oh, 
Why didn't we do that? So I said, that's okay. You know what? It's a small thing, but I just, and I, that was the beauty of working with Sarah was that she was so collaborative. I oftentimes don't say anything to a director, but I felt like I could. And so it was the very last day of shooting Mm. and everybody had gone home. All the movie stars had gone. There was just me left. And I was doing a, a one last shot with no dialogue. And then Sarah came into my trailer and she said, do you want to make your bed? And I said, oh, my God. She'd never forgotten. So we, the production manager, Peter Costco, they had put the whole, my whole bedroom back together. We walked onto the set. Sarah said to the crew, she said, we're just going to redo Sheila's teeth scene again. And because there's something she wants to do at the end of it. And it's a really good idea. And it's her idea. And I can't tell you how many directors would not give an actor credit for something that was not their idea. So we did it. And wow. the beauty of it was great. And it's in the movie and it's like a second, but it's there. But was so incredible was that after that happened, the movie wrapped and Sarah and I walked off set and there were 200 Canadian crew standing and applauding the Canadian girls. And I, I could cry just thinking about it. Sarah's, I said, I turned to Sarah and I said, well, there's the Oscar for me right there. <laughs> wow. 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 Yeah. Oh. You know, true. And she just, and for both of us, we just stood there and went, wow, look, look what just happened. And then we had no idea, you know, for another year that the movie would be so heralded by so many people. So, wow. And boy, did, and we're, we're going to get to the award season, but I just want to say this one thing that I read as well. I loved reading when Sarah Polly said about you, this is what she said, quote, I've admired Sheila McCarthy since I was a child. She always has had a screen presence unlike anyone else, a fairy, a clown, a sage. It's true. She got it. She nailed it. She nailed it. (laughs) Thank you, Sarah Polly. Listen, every, every time we were on the press junk and I walked into another fabulous hotel room, I would just look around and go, thank you, Sarah. Sarah. I love you so much. So let's talk about the awards for a moment. I know you attended so many award shows and galas and festivals for this film, and I've seen you wearing the most beautiful gowns for all of it. It seems like that's a full-time job in itself, right? We're going to hear all about the fashions in just a moment. We'll go on a short commercial break first and be right back, back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. Create is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. Create is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, Create is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. Create has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? Create Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. This is Finding Your Bliss, and I'm joined by actor Sheila McCarthy. And just before the break, Sheila, I was asking you about award show fashions that you wore so beautifully. 
that must have been a lot of work to put together. Oh my goodness, it was. <laughs> yes, it was. And you know, those press junkets are not for the faint of heart. Like it was pretty starting in Telluride, which was beautiful. We and then people coming up to us for the very first time, Anne Hathaway throwing her arms around me, sobbing, and you know, the succession cast and the I mean, it was really something. And then it just continued for six months leading up to the Oscars. And mm. so it was so much fun because, you know, that's the icing on the cake. I mean, that it's, and it's more work than acting. I'm going to tell you that. Holy <laughs> I moly. think so. How did wow. you, how did you prepare all of those outfits and hair and makeup for award season in Hollywood? Well, you know, they give you budgets for that and they give you hair and makeup people show up at your door. And I hired a publicist down there and I have managers and I thought, well, I'll wear, I'll copy the big stars and I'll get Greta Constantine, <laughs> the beautiful Canadian designers to lend me some clothes. I phoned Jeannie Becker and I said, who should I use? And she said, you're going to use Greta Constantine. I went, yes, I am. So I took a suitcase full of clothes down to LA with me and I love clothes. So I love playing dress up and I love all that part of it. It's just, I mean, it really is like playing a part. So of it's, course. that was just so much fun. Oh. And, you know, at my age now and having done this for so long, it was just a blast to do all that. Yes. You know, I was glad when it was over, like I was, okay, I need to go home. <laughs> Decompress. <laughs> you know, we compress, but you know, plus the movie was garnering such success and such notice. So that was super fun. Super fun. Yeah. I saw you in a glorious photo with Brooke Shields. What was that oh. like? Wow. She came up, me and my daughter, we were at the, um, it was the pre-Oscar George Clooney party oh. and, you know, star studded. Oh my goodness. And she came up, she would talk to gushing about, about women talking. And, and then she said, is this your daughter? And my daughter's quite shy. And she kept stroking my daughter's cheek oh. going, Oh my God, our babies grow up. Don't they? And I, and I was like, wow, this is Brooke. Oh <laughs> and I met oh, one of my idols. I met Bette Midler. That was incredible, incredible wow. moment. She came up and introduced herself to me. I went, yeah, like, <laughs> hi, I'm Bette Midler. Are you Bette Midler? Are you? That's nice to know that you have to introduce yourself to me. <laughs> oh, my God. It was just too much. What was your reaction at the Oscars when Sarah Polly got up there and won her best adapted screenplay for Women Talking? Well, I mean, first of all, just being there was ridiculous. You know, Lady Gaga, Sigourney Weaver, Hugh Grant, Kate Hudson sitting in front. But I knew she would win. I just thought in my heart, they can't give this to anybody else. She didn't. She was just sitting there. And, you know, it's a funny thing when you're nominated for something. You're sick if you win. You're sick if you don't win. Let's just call a spade. You, you know what you mean? It just, it's, it is it's a really weird state of being yes. to be in. And I met Seth Rogen at the Vanity Fair party afterwards. He said, nobody has ever run faster for their Oscar than you, Sarah Polly. You sprinted to the stage as though your Oscar was going to disappear. Oh, <laughs> uh, but we were just everybody was thrilled. It was as though she'd won best film, you know, yes. and we knew that that was not going to happen. We knew it was not in the cards that everywhere all at once was just sort of the darling of the year. And, and so, but the best adapted screenplay, wow. I just thought, oh, this is so deserving. So, anyway, so fabulous. It was a great moment. We leapt to our feet. <laughs> 
and the hot pink dress got a lot of airtime. Oh, that was just it was just so gorgeous, so gorgeous, so fabulous, yeah. all of it. You really <laughs> seem to age so gracefully. And as mentioned by Sarah Pauly, who thought you were too youthful for the role of Greta, what is your relationship between aging and acting? Because I think even broadcasters like to know this, mm-hmm. actors like to know this, and you seem to have a healthy one. You know, honestly, I was a little old bird when I was six. I have never thought, I mean, the aging thing, I mean, listen, the first time I saw women talking, I was, Judith Ivy and I called each other. We went, oh my God, holy moly, that is terrifying. Not a chin line to be found. Wow. But then it took me about three times to actually see the movie without going, oh, but you know what? It's very personal to me that I have not sort of enhanced or done or because for me, this is who I am. And I don't think I would have been cast in the movie had I, you know, given nature a nudge all those years ago. Don't think I didn't think about it. When I was doing Little Mosque on the Prairie, every year I would sit in the makeup trailer and go, oh, my God, I forgot to have Botox. I'm so sorry. (laughs) But I've always poke fun at myself about it. And I really decided early on that it wasn't for me so that I am just, and I feel like I've grown into myself now and I'm in another sort of whole snack bracket now Hmm. of potential parts and it's who I am. And yeah. So, you know, it's very personal, everybody to each his own and I love everybody and whatever. But for me, it was just not in the cards to ever try and be any, I'm very open. I'm 67. I've never, I don't really care. Mm-hmm. And um, I love playing parts where there is no makeup. I, you know, it's always a shock and it's a shock to be 67. Let's face it, you know, but my mom was 87 and went, how did that happen? Yeah. And there's not a darn thing you can do about it. So, you know, I lost my first husband when I was 55 and, you know, he, we have no time. This is it. Mm-hmm. And I'm very aware of that, you know, all the time of sort of, our mortality and yes. and how fleeting it all is. And so I try and remember that, you know. Absolutely. It's a happy problem to age, right? It's, yes. It is. Yeah, it, it is. is. Mm-hmm. I also think that dance and fitness might also have something to do with it. Do you still have a rigorous fitness routine? Oh, yes. Oh, my. It's even worse. Wow. <laughs> yes. What does it consist of? Yes. Well, so, I mean, I have this ring now, this aura ring that clocks my steps. The whole 10,000 steps a day, like I'm up, I gym <laughs> every day for an hour and I walk the dog and I, I am, and I remember my dear old dad who was a radiologist saying, you know, Sheila, just because you exercise for hours every day isn't going to keep the Grim Reaper away. And I went, no, I know, but it does keep me happy. And so that exercise for me is my therapy, my medicine, my waking thought. Both my daughters know when I haven't. Mom, go to the gym. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It is just what I need to do to stay confident and, and it works for me. So I've never not done it. It is always super important to me. So good. So smart and so good. Well, it's just what keeps me happy. There's so much I want to go on and say, and I I know we can't get to it all, so you're going to have to come back on another time. But I just wanted to say that you did Emily of New Moon and filmed 48 episodes as Aunt Laura with this heart of gold. 
and you had the chance to work with your children and your beloved late husband, Peter Donaldson, mm-hmm. on this project. And you described mm-hmm. it as one of the greatest moments of your career, getting mm-hmm. to do this with your family. So what a life oh, yeah. and career moment. Can you just briefly say what was so fabulous about that time? Well, you know, and it's funny, we were just about to move to Los Angeles. And then I got offered at Laura in Emily of Newman, which I initially turned down because I thought, no, I'm going to LA. I'm going to be a big star in Los Angeles. And then I started to put friends on tape for the role. And then I started to dream about it. And then they called again and gave me a second shot at turning down the part, which kind of never happens. And I remember because my Peter never wanted to go to LA. He was the, he wanted, he was, didn't want to live there and go there on spec and then have it not happen and blah, blah, blah. So they called back and Michael Donovan, the producer said, what can we do to get you to PEI? And I said, I'll go. So that, isn't that interesting? And and it was so meant to be. And you know, that was one of the, it was a fabulous, as a working mother, you know, there's very few professions that women can do where their children can be with them, like, you know, run a grocery store or whatever. So that was one of the few times I realized that my whole world was in this studio. And then Pete came on as my suitor on the show. Mackie got a little part. Drew was an extra. Oh. Um, I got to meet Martha McIsaac, who's like my third daughter. And uh, for four years, that was a perfect world for me of work. Work, life, mm. mummy, balance. Mm. And honestly, very few mothers I know, you know, my kids were never in daycare. And, you know, I also had the luxury of having nannies who then became the onset <laughs> nannies and tutors. Yes. And my kids, you know, my, my daughter said to me recently, Mom, you never took us camping. And I went, What are you talking about? You grew, you were in trailers your whole life with craft service. <laughs> now, that's not camping, Mom. That's really not camping. But, it's way better. You know, it's way better. Yeah. I mean, until they were in school, it was a luxury to have them. What a gift. What a gift. Yeah. Yeah. I loved also the story about how Mackenzie Donaldson, your daughter, was the producer on Orphan Black in 2015, and you acted on that episode. Was that such a trip to work together as mother and daughter? Oh, yes. I mean, I remember she came home one day and she was really stressed about something. And I said, what's wrong? She went, oh, mom, you would not understand. You just simply would not understand what I am going through. And I thought, yeah, because I've never been on set. Before. I can so relate. She's amazing. She, she directed me in a movie last summer, and that was very exciting. And now she's having a baby. So, you know, they lost their dad at a terrible age. And so we're very close. And they're the best awards anyone could of ever course. have. The, ever, be- the ever, best. Ever, ever. I, so, I feel that way about my kids. I so get that. Yeah. I also love, Sheila, that you teach. What mm-hmm. do you love about teaching? And I was wondering, how does that inform your work as an actor? Well, yes, I started teaching during the little mosque years because, you know, we were shooting four months of the year and I like to be busy 12 months of the year. And, you know, you can't be too greedy when you're on series. So I started teaching a comedy on film class at Humber. And I didn't know if I could do it, but what I realized as I did it, how free I felt and how much I had to sort of offer and to sort of, and having done this for so long, and it was just a new hat for me to wear. And I loved it. I loved it. And that sort of led to directing. And, and, uh, Mm. so I just really love, it's not about me. It's about them. So I don't feel nervous Mm -hmm. and I don't feel that the spotlight is on me. And I kind of like that. Mm. Incredible. 
I just want to ask briefly, very briefly, about the popular big Netflix series, Umbrella Academy, that you've been on. Very cool. Briefly, what was it like working on that TV show? Oh, that was so much fun because I think I was 64 or something, 65, and my boyfriend was 29. I went, is this a thing? Like, are you going to talk about the fact that he's so much younger than me? And they went, no, it's just a love story. And honestly, when I played that part... I kind of felt like I was revisiting Polly and I've heard the mermaid singing. It was a kind of naivety to her that I went, oh, this is ringing a big bell in my head. And I went, oh, Polly grows up and becomes a donut waitress and in another dimension. Fabulous. (laughs) I loved it. It was so sweet and the people were incredible. Fabulous. Sheila, you were born to do this. What do you love the most (laughs) about performing? Wow. What do I love the most? The people. I mean, I've just met some incredible people along the way, the people in the relationships and the curtain call. (laughs) Yes. What is bliss for Sheila McCarthy? Bliss is putting my head on the pillow after a long day and accomplishing what I set out to do, not necessarily acting, but ticking off the boxes and having accomplished maybe half of them. That's bliss. Good feeling. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you, this has been an absolute thrill and honor to have you here. And I, oh, thank you. I, I just thank you well, for so- me too. Honestly, you really, it's it was it's it was great. My goodness, you did your homework. <laughs> thank you. Wow. What is the best way, Sheila, for people to contact you and connect with you on social media? Oh my goodness. Well, I'm at Sheila C McCarthy is my Instagram. And I think, <laughs> you know, just message me. I'm very available. <laughs> My agent is Adam Stutt at Gary Goddard and Associates. So reach out. I love talking to actors. I love answering questions. And, you know, I, I, I do love talking about the whole process because I think it helps students for sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm open. <laughs> Thank you. Each week we spotlight a fabulous person like the one and only Sheila McCarthy, who is living their bliss. And so if you are anyone who has found and is following their bliss, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at fyb at findingyourbliss.com. You can reach out and contact us at The Bliss Minute on Instagram and Facebook. I'd like to thank our wonderful guest, Sheila McCarthy, for being on the show today. Also, thank you to Meg Ruffman, Siobhan Kiley, producer Nayira Money, associate producer Olivia Weatherall, audio engineer Juliana Yanitsiello, senior editor Lauren Kaminsky, video editor Sierra Brown-Rodriguez, and everyone here at Zoomer. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Center. For everyone here, I'm Judy Liebrack, reminding you all to take one step closer to finding your bliss. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.